This afternoon we turn back to the prophecy of Isaiah and we continue in chapter 10 where we left off, picking up this afternoon at verse 5. Isaiah chapter 10, we'll be considering verse 5 to the end of the chapter at verse 34. So the bulk of, of chapter 10. In verse 5 it says, O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger and the staff in their hand is mine indignation. But then look at a couple of other notable verses, one in the middle of the chapter, verse 12. Wherefore it shall come to pass that when the Lord hath performed his whole work upon Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his high looks. Again, in the end of the chapter, verse 33. Behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, shall lop the bow with terror, and the high ones of stature shall be hewn down, and the haughty shall be humbled. The title of our sermon is, The Proud Shall Be Broken. We all know something about the law of gravity, uh, that what goes up must come down. Children learn this when merely toddlers, right? Long before they actually go to science class and learn the explanation behind it, that in this world, under normal circumstances, the law of gravity is a force that's always operative. And there is, by way of parallel or analogy, there is, if you will allow me, kind of a spiritual law of gravity, that what goes up must come down. The Bible tells us that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The Bible tells us everywhere, not just here in chapter 10 of Isaiah, that he will most certainly, irrefutably, definitely, humble the proud, that those who are haughty and high and lifted up in their own imaginations and thoughts and so on will inescapably be brought down by the Lord. In time, the Lord does this on a daily basis, but ultimately he will also do it on the last day, on the judgment day and all that follows in its wake. Pride does come before a fall, before a drop, a plummet precipitous plummet into the ground. Interestingly, in this spiritual law, there's actually a corresponding flip side, isn't there? Because the Lord will lift up the humble. This is why you get you know, that language of uh, expression of humility in James 4 and 1 Peter 5 and so on. You have the language there repeating that, that God gives grace. He gives more grace to the humble. And so we're taught in those passages to say, that we're to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, that in due time he shall lift us up, that in that case what goes down will most certainly be brought up if it's going down in a, a gospel and God-centered uh, way that the Lord is pleased to, to do this. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because the proud often portray themselves and, and I think are viewed in the eyes of others as strong, Right? They, they exude this sense of strength when, in fact, they are actually hopelessly weak. Right? You have all the vaunting and you have the bravado and the, you know, all the language that people use and so on and so forth. Often, most of that usually is, is, is a thin veneer for insecurity anyway. But that aside, you have this portrayal of strength in the proud when, in fact, they are incredibly weak. They're, they're hanging by a thread. They're so vulnerable. 
And indeed, the Lord is, is going to follow through with his word as, as, he always, as, as he always does. Well, that, that idea, that biblical truth lies behind much of what we find uh, in this particular passage, right? In the, the verses that I've just cited, a few of which I've just cited, and in the theme as a whole, the pride, uh, the proud shall be, shall be broken. This is a description of Assyria, one of the world powers in history, the one that immediately preceded Babylon. Uh, there were few, few empires like it in the history of the world in terms of its accomplishment, its strength, its power. We, we don't study as much as we should probably all that we know about it because it does give us light. Uh, they were quite advanced in their uh, military pedigree and so on. It was a, a place that grew up initially uh, in the city of Asher, right, in the, the region of the northern Tigris River, and expanded and expanded and expanded, and other obviously significant cities followed uh, from that. It's Assyria that's being spoken of, one of the great enemies of the ancient church in the, the Old Testament. And it is their pride that is being identified. We're going to note two things, really, dividing this chapter in half and then a few things under both of those. First of all, we have the destruction of the proud. So picking up at verse 5 and then through verse 19, the destruction of the proud. We're told that God is the one who has raised them up. You'll notice in verse 5, O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger. And the staff in their hand is mine indignation. The Lord is saying here that he has been pleased to raise up in his sovereign providence this nation of Assyria in order to accomplish specific purposes that God intends. So Assyria, of course, is thinking uh, all of their plotting and planning and strategy and goals and successes and triumphs and so on. They're thinking inside their own heads this way. And the Lord's speaking to them, and he's saying, look, you, you are in my hand, and you are accomplishing uh, my own purposes. And this is where the great mistake happens with all that are proud in whatever degree, and we're all proud. Uh, we see it very um, graphically in the unbeliever. We see it as well in various degrees within the believer. We see it in nations. We see it in other organizations, and so on and so forth. The mistake is to see a measure of success or perhaps perceived insight or accomplishment or strength or whatever it is, mind or, or brawn, and, and to, to make the mistake of thinking that this is ours and that we have done it ourselves and that we have deserve the glory and merit for, for what we have, have accomplished. Right? That's the fatal mistake of every proud thought, to take credit to ourselves for something that should be given all glory to, to the Lord. That's temporal things as well as spiritual things, big things as well as, as little things. As you've heard so many times from this pulpit, you know, everything that we are everything that we have, everything that we've done for good, all of it we've received. First Corinthians 4, 7. What do we have that we haven't received? The only thing we can call our own, as every child in here can tell us, the only thing we can call our own is our sin. That's it. 
Everything else in terms of what is commendable, the glory goes to the Lord. And so he says here that he's sending him, he's sending Assyria against a hypocritical nation, against his, his own people. And he's going to chasten, discipline his own people with the rod of Assyria in the hand of Jehovah himself. And what a rod it is. Amazing terror. Verse 7, Howbeit he meaneth not so, neither doth his heart think so, but in his heart to destroy and cut off nations, not a few. So he has in his field of vision, the Assyrians, that they're going to trounce everybody, everywhere, every time. And so they have this view that they're going to they're going to expand their empire in remarkable ways and bring glory to themselves and on, so on, not knowing that history exists for the purpose of Zion, right? The whole of history, every last bit of it revolves around the axis of the church of Jesus Christ, Old and New Testament, apostolic and post-apostolic time. And so their real purpose was for the Lord to deal with his people. But they think otherwise. They think, well, we're going to tread down all these, these nations. We're going to destroy them, uh, not, not a few. And so then we get verse 8 to 14, and there's this description then of what's found in their mouth, which reflects what's found in their heart and in their minds. And it is vaunting and boasting and arrogance and so on. In verse 8, they're speaking about their power. Look at our power, our princes, our kings. We have enormous power. Look at, the, look at our speed, you know, verses 9 and, and 10. You know, he, he says, Is not Kalno as uh, Karkemesh, and is not Hamath as Arpad, is not Samaria as Damascus, as my hand hath found the kingdoms of the idols, and whose graven images did excel them of Jerusalem and of Samaria. It's saying, look, we can, we're taking over stuff left, right, and center. Everything's falling before us. It's like knocking down paper walls for for a city after city after city fell, and we're going to take Jerusalem as well, and anything else we want, anything else that we, we see. And so they set, as you see in verse 11, they set Jerusalem in their, their sights. And the language here, you know, shall I not, as I have done unto Samaria and her idols, so do to Jerusalem and her idols? And then going on to describe the their, their, their language. This, this, this sounds a lot like something you know well, I think. And it is the language of Rabshakeh. Right? You go to 2 Kings chapter 18, and there, verse 30, 33, he's saying, Hath any of the gods of the nations delivered at all his, his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sephavarim, Hena, Iva, have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who are they among all the gods of the countries that have delivered their country out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? Right? This, this is what we're hearing. This is what we are seeing. In fact, you notice the analogies there. The, um, in verse 14, for us to conquer nations is as easy as taking eggs out of the nest, right? We meander over there. We just pick them up and pocket them. Nothing that anyone can do. No wings raised, no beaks raised against us. We're able to just take them as eggs from a nest. And the language uh, and, the, and the pride, of course, is accentuated 
when you look at the pronouns, you know, for, for example, verse, uh, verse 13, for he, for he hath said, by the strength of my hand, have I, uh, uh, my hand, I have done it. And by my wisdom, for I am prudent, I have removed the bounds of the people and have robbed their treasures. And I have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man, and so on. And so here they are. God is allowing them in his sovereign order to accomplish things for his purpose. And Assyria is taking all the credit to themselves and flattering herself like she's big stuff, like she's invincible, unconquerable, and so on. And that she will always and forever expand. This is the nature of empires. Every empire in the history of the world past and present, right? They all, empires inflate. It's the nature of an empire, this consolidation, centralization, right? The aggrandizing of the empire, the expansion of the empire. The nature of empires is inherently expansive. They want control. They want to be sovereign. They want to, they want to have the place of God, and they want to be able to control what everybody else is doing and, and what they're not doing and so on. And they want, to, they want a, a, a market on the whole market for their own glory, right? They want themselves to be seen as the greatest and so on. What does the Lord say? The Lord says, in essence, I'm going to squash you like a bug. I'm going to turn you into a grease spot on the floor. Your pride is going to be broken. You are going to be humbled. As you see in verse 12, I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his high looks. You look at the, the language of verse 16. Well, verse 15, first of all, he's saying, they're a tool in my hand. And then he says, can the axe boast? That it's knocked stuff down? The axe is nothing. It's the person wielding the axe. You know, can, he goes on to say, can the rod shake itself? No. Only in the hand of the one who holds it. He's saying, remember your place. Remember who you are. Remember where you've come from. Remember what I'm doing. And then, therefore shall the Lord, the Lord of hosts, send among his among his fat ones, leanness. And under his glory shall kindle a burning like the burning of a fire. He goes on to say in verse 18, and shall consume the glory of his forest. Verse 19, and the rest of the trees of his forest shall be few that a child may write them. I'm going to take this robust, vast, expansive, innumerable number of trees, this sprawling forest, and I'm going to whack it to the ground so that there are so few, so few trees left that a little kid can count them. That's what's going to happen. And that is precisely what did happen. God foretold it, then he fulfilled it. He prophesied of it, and then he brought it to pass so that he raised up Babylon and they completely demolished, annihilated, scrubbed the desert with Assyria. So that it was gone, gone in terms of any place in the face of the earth. And then, of course, the same thing happens to, to Babylon. 
you know, one of the most prosperous, wealthy, opulent places in the history of the world, and it's turned into a sandbox, a dust bowl by, by the Lord. And so the Lord is, is, is going to humble the proud. Now, this is true at every level. Perhaps the most, uh, the ultimate level would be who? The devil himself created as a sinless angel and good in the beginning, who in his pr pride rebels against the Almighty. And then who in his pride spends the rest of human history railing with all of his might against the king and his kingdom. And it's pride everywhere, pompous pride everywhere. And yet the Lord crushes the head of the serpent, the seed of the serpent, right? He, he destroys the devil and his demons and hell and death and, and, and the rest at the cross and resurrection. But then the last day comes and he who sought to exalt himself above the highest heavens is cast into the depths of the lake of fire. The Lord humbling the pride, uh, the proud there. We see it everywhere else in human history. Nations over and over and over again. There are no exceptions. You know, every nation, America isn't unique in, in this exceptionalism and thinking that somehow we are the exception to the general rule. No, this is, this is like, this is so boring. Like we've seen it and heard it so many times before. There is no exception. The Lord deals as he reveals in his word. It's true of people as well. But you'll notice as well in this section that the Lord is, the Lord is sovereign. I mean, his sovereignty is so beautifully portrayed. And he uses even uh, the wicked. He uses even the wicked for his holy purposes. And, you know, people kind of grimace and get uncomfortable and shift in their seats. Not our congregation so much, but, you know, people generally. And yet this, this idea that God uses the wicked, if you throw that out the window, it would be to throw out a biblical doctrine. But you realize you're throwing the gospel and the cross out the window. Because this is seen no, nowhere more vividly than at the cross. At the cross where wicked men do the most wicked deed ever in the history of the world. And so Peter gets up at Pentecost to preach and uh, to preach about this. And, and he's saying to the people, confronting them straight on, that, that their, their wicked hands have crucified the Lord of glory. But notice how he, 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 he weaves this together with God's sovereign will. Verse 23, Acts 2, 23. Him, that is Christ, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Lord was using wicked to accomplish the most glorious and gracious and good thing ever to happen. 
and the atoning sacrifice of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we learn that without the Lord, the most mighty are nothing. That, that without the Lord, the most mighty are the epitome of weakness. Those who appear most mighty are the most weak. That severed from the Lord, severed from humility and dependence and giving glory and thanks to the Lord, living and serving the Lord, living before the Lord and serving the Lord. Without that, the most mighty are our weakness. But we need to bring it down to our own bosoms, of course, our own hearts and our own, our own lives. Because the pride that is found within, within you is the same in terms of its native instincts, its nature. Pride turns the eye from God to self. Pride turns the eye, rather than being God-conscious and God-centered, rather than having our eyes on the Lord who is high and lifted up, we turn our eye from God to ourselves. So you're, you're in a situation, you're maybe in a conversation, and, and yeah, you give vent to pride and you get all flustered and full of yourself and you think you're right, you're sure you're right, you're 100% sure you're right and everybody else is wrong, and you, you shoot your mouth off, right? That's pride. You, you've lost sight of God. You're only focused on, on yourself, whatever other the, the, the circumstances are. But here's the problem. When, when, we, when pride turns its eye from God to self, it ends up being able to see neither. You can see neither then. Because pride blinds us. Right? We're blinded by our pride so that now we are unable to see the Lord rightly nor see ourselves rightly. We can't see either. And you, you wonder sometimes at people and you think, you know, why can't they see what appears to be so obvious? The answer sometimes is because they are blinded by their pride. True of individuals, true corporately as, as well. And so we have that language of verses 16 and 17 where the Lord says, I'm going to, I'm going to cut them down. I'm going to humble them. I'm going to, to vindicate my own glory. Why? 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 Why is this so important to the Lord? Because God will not share his glory with any other. Never, ever, ever. The very definition of what it means for him to be God includes that he receives all glory. And if it were any other way, he wouldn't be God. But he is God. And therefore, he must have all the glory. And therefore, he will share none of his glory with, with any other in this, in this way. And so the Lord humbles them. It's true with regards to, to, to the gospel as well, isn't it? The, those of you who are unconverted, you're in a state of sin. You're, you're filled with unbelief. Part of the problem is your pride. Right, very closely linked with unbelief. Your pride. You can't see. The Bible tells you you're blind. You think you have the world by the tail. You think you understand. You think you know what to th what's happening and, and what the circumstances are. And you don't. 
you don't. And so for some, they think to themselves, well, I mean, look, you know, I'm doing my best. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going to church. I'm here. I'm under the preaching. You know, I'm reading my Bible. I'm doing all these other things and so on and so forth. But there's pride in that. In each instance, it's I am doing this. I am doing that. I am contributing something. I am meriting something. I'm earning something with the Lord. That's pride. And you can't see. You can't see yourself. You can't see the Savior as a result of it. Or you think, well, you know, these things are important, no doubt. Minister preaches on them frequently. But, you know, I've got a lot of things in front of me. And I have, you know, ambitions and goals and things I'm interested in. And I'm focusing my life on and so on and so forth. It's pride. It's idiotic. It's blindness, stupidity. To think that these things which occupy your mind, your affection, your pursuits, your ambitions, your priorities, your goals, and so on, are the most important thing. When quite frankly, they're the least important thing in your world. And the most important thing you have arrogantly laid aside. Pride blinds us. Oh, that the Lord would come through the means of his word accompanied by the Holy Spirit and would expose to yourself your own pride, that he would enable you to see it, that he would be merciful to you. Because when the gospel comes, it humbles us, doesn't it? The Spirit comes to convict us of sin. It shows us ourselves so that we can see the ugliness the problem for those who are unconverted is that they never see their need. They think all is well and don't see their need. If a person truly, truly saw their need, they would be beside themselves to get to the Savior. The Spirit has to come and show us our need, to convict us of our sin, to bring us down into the dust, low before the Lord, to show us that we're empty and bankrupt. So that in stooping to come through the gospel door, we're coming empty, full of sin, bankruptcy, debt, guilt, pollution, in order that we might receive all that Christ is and all that Christ has accomplished for us in receiving Christ himself. Right? This is the gospel way. The Lord wounds the proud in order to heal them. He wounds the proud to heal them with humility and faith and all that else comes, comes with it. One last thing under this point. There are those who, who sometimes, no doubt you've talked to them, they, obje they object to this whole business of God destroying, hewing down, cutting, grinding, burning, wiping out people, right? This, all the language of divine wrath and the destruction that he brings upon mankind and so on. They object to this. What's the problem? The problem is an inadequate view of what sin is leads to a false view of what sin deserves. That's the problem. So an inadequate view of what sin is leads to a false view of what sin deserves. And so people say, well, it's, it's not fair, it's not right, it's not whatever, that God destroys 
the Assyrians and any and everybody else that he destroys. That's saying, well, that destruction isn't deserved. Well, one can only say that because you don't understand the nature of sin itself. Right? Sin itself is the antithesis of what God is in his being. Sin itself is, the, is set over against all that God is. Right? Sin is rebellion against God himself. Defiance of God himself. It includes lots of elements, that ingratitude and so on and so forth. But, but sin is to be driven from God's presence. Adam and Eve sinned. And there's this great expulsion. They're driven out of God's presence and barred. Right? That's what sin does. Sin repels, whereas grace draws us to the Lord. Pride comes before destruction, before a fall, whereas the Lord lifts up the humble. He resists the proud. Distance. He gives grace, draws those who are were humble. And so we have, first of all, the destruction of the proud. Secondly, there is deliverance through judgment. Verse 20 to the end of the chapter. Deliverance through judgment. So the people of God are going to receive deliverance, salvation, redemption, if you will. But they receive it through the judgment. Deliverance comes through judgment. This is traced Genesis to Revelation, but obviously clearly at the cross. Deliverance through judgment. And we see it popping up all throughout the, the history of, of the Old Testament. So in verse, in verse 5, we're told that God uses Assyria as a rod. And then he punishes them. How can this be? Well, the reason it can be is because... The Assyrians are culpable for their own actions. They only do what they want. And God gives them free reign to do what they want. And he sovereignly ordered it all in his decrees. But they truly want it. They do ultimately what they want. And that's true of everybody. You do what you want. Ultimately, what you want most and so it is right for the Lord to hold them responsible, for them to be culpable, and therefore for them to be punished for their wickedness, for their sins, to be humbled for their pride. You know, the, the men and nations think to themselves that they are opposing God, that like Rabshka, you know, Jehovah can't deliver you any more than anybody else can. We can sack him like we've sacked all the other gods. So, so wicked men, natural men, think that they're opposing God. But here's the irony in it all. They think that they're opposing God himself. And yet in that very act, they're accomplishing his purpose. And are then punished for it. Everything is absolutely turned upside down. They think we're, we're going to win. We are winning. We're opposing the Lord. We're... We're going to cast off his cords from us, nations like Psalm 2. We're going to you know, cast off his cords from us. We're not going to submit to the Lord's Christ as king and so on and so forth. We're going to go our own way. And yet in that very act, they're only fulfilling what God has purposed. This is how delusional 
and how darkened people are in their minds. And then, having done what they've done, down comes the scepter to smash the pottery into shards, to use the imagery of Psalm 2. And so there's deliverance, right? So the, the emphasis in the second part of the chapter is on deliverance. We, we read of the return of the remnant. And it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as are escaped. We're told that they will stay upon the Lord, the Holy One of Israel in truth. Verse 21, the remnant shall return, even the remnant of Jacob, unto the mighty God. You'll remember back uh, earlier, Isaiah's firstborn son. Anybody remember? Isaiah's firstborn son is Shir Jashub, which means the remnant will return. And this is a theme that is, that is pulled all the way through the prophecy of, of Isaiah. And it's what you see here in verses 20, 21, and 22. The remnant of them shall return. Right here they are brought to the brink under the chastening hand of the Lord. But the Lord is pleased, having chastened them, to deliver them and to bring them back with his own bounty. And so they're those who are the remnant, those who are chosen, those who are faithful, those who are obedient, those who are staying uh, upon Jehovah, the Lord of, of Israel in truth. The Lord has his remnant. In the days of, of Noah, things were really bleak. The whole world's at war with the king of heaven. And the remnant is reduced to eight souls who are stuck in the ark and delivered. And you fast forward to the apostasy of Ahab and all that's going on there. And the remnant is reduced to 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Well, we could go on to give other illustrations, but this is the picture that the Lord, the Lord gives us. And it's interesting that this language in verses 20, 20 to 22 is picked up by the Apostle Paul. So in, in Romans chapter 9, he takes what we saw in chapter 1 of Isaiah in reference to how Israel would become a Sodom and Gomorrah. And he ties it together with Isaiah chapter 10, uh, these words. And he refers to them in Romans 9 verses 27 and 28. He says, Isaiah also crieth concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved, and he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. So here's the Apostle Paul using this, this text and incorporating it into this exposition of the doctrine of election and of God's predestinating grace and his prerogative to show mercy to whom he will show mercy and to damn whom he wills to damn and so on. But it still underlines this principle that we're highlighting, doesn't it? That, that, that all that is happening is ultimately for God's people. All that is unfolding is ultimately happening for his people. The remnant will be saved. The Lord will deliver. And it is every last bit of it, grace. It's all the Lord giving to his people. Why do I say that? Because the remnant, wherever it's found here in Isaiah 10 and elsewhere, wherever the remnant is found, the remnant consists of people who are sinners 
left to themselves no better than the Assyrians or the Babylonians, Medes, Persians, Sodom and Gomorrah, whoever else. They are at base no different. All that makes them different is divine grace. Sovereign grace, which once again blows the trumpet of all glory, honor, and praise belonging to the Lord himself so that he is receiving the glory. We learn to glory in the Lord alone. Language, you'll know it from the end of Jeremiah chapter 9, where it says, verse 23, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might, let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord, which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. And Paul picks this up in two different times to the Corinthians. Let him who glory, glories, glory in the Lord. Right? We're only to glory in the Lord. And so there's the return of the remnant. There's the deliverance of the remnant, verses 28 uh, to the end. And here you have kind of the description of unfolding events of how this deliverance will take place. So Assyria is pressing, pressing, pressing. It'll come to pass in that day, speaking of something that is in the very near future. He's prophesying of what is near at hand. He says the day will come to pass. The burden will be taken off and so on. And here is, here is Assyria. He's come to Ayath and he's passed to Migron and Michmash and he's laid open his carriages and so on. And there's this picture of kind of the swelling momentum of Assyria and they're pressing and they're coming. And the passage says God is going to drop the hammer. The Lord's going to stop them in their tracks. The Lord's going to put an end to them. And as you come to Isaiah chapter 37 and 38, we actually read about this in greater detail. And it corresponds to the parallel passages in the narratives that are given to us earlier in the, in the, in the Old Testament. The whole depiction of what happens with Sennacherib it's interesting because Hezekiah's king, as you'll know, and Isaiah's prophesied during his reign as well, toward the end of Isaiah's ministry. And um, so Isaiah has this relationship with Hezekiah, and it's beautiful. We get to those chapters just before chapter 40, very rich, rich portion of, of God's word. So Sennacherib has come, and there's all this, this foreboding that's taking place. And if you go to Isaiah 37... And you read uh, verses 30, I think it's 30 to 35 or thereabouts. What's happening is this. Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, in those circumstances, is holding on to this promise recorded in Isaiah 10. He's holding on to the promise given in our text when actually faced with the unfolding events themselves. So if you look at Isaiah 37, the Lord's going to give him a sign. And he says, And the remnant that has escaped of the house of Judah shall again come, take root downward, and bear fruit upward, and so on. Right? There's a reinforcement of this, this very promise, which he can plead. What happens? Even the children know what happens. Sennacherib, with all of his boasting and vaunting, and we're going to trounce you, and you have no hope whatsoever, and all the other colorful ways in which he describes that. 
the Lord drops the hammer. And Sennacherib is forced by God to do an about-face and to flee. Right? He's compelled to withdraw all of his troops, and he has to hightail it out of there. The Lord prophesied of it. Jeremiah pleads the promises of that prophecy, and the Lord fulfills them in rebuffing Assyria and bringing her to naught. Deliverance, right? So deliverance of, of the remnant. And this, this is obviously connected, as I've already alluded to and made clear, the cosmic war, the war of all wars that, that echoes down through the history of, of the world, where the devil is out to defame and defy the God of glory, to make war against the seed of the woman. And we see that war unfolding throughout the history of, of the world. And, and it's, it's just like we see here that there is deliverance from judgment. The Lord destroys his and our enemies. He destroys the devil. And he makes an open show of him. And in the process, delivers his people. All of his people who are in bondage under the reign, the tyranny, the despotism of the devil, who, who are bound in this kingdom of darkness. When the Lord brings destruction, he scoops all of his people out of that kingdom of darkness and brings them into the kingdom of light under the reign of his son. There's salvation. There's deliverance. The blind are made to see. The dead are made to live. Those who are in slavery to sin, are, the bonds are broken and they're set free by the grace of God to live for his, his glory. Deliverance through judgment. It's gospel. Gospel truths being illustrated and highlighted for us here. And so we recognize that pride shall be broken wherever it is found and to whatever degree it's found. The gospel leaves us with a call to humble ourselves. Now, as we prepare for the Lord's Supper in the week ahead, it's a word in season, isn't it? It's a check for our own consciences under which we need to examine ourselves. But in tracing out all of the ways that pride lurks in our bosoms, we're being called to humble ourselves. Get down before the Lord, get in the dust where we belong, to humble ourselves under his mighty hand, to go down in order that we might go up, in order that he might exalt us, in order that he might bless and prosper and refresh us by the abundant riches of his grace. We, we fast day and, and Thursday, come repenting of our sins, examining ourselves, all with a view to going up the hill to feast with the king, to be made fat with the riches of his grace, and to behold his glory and to rejoice over it, and to give him and to give him alone all of the glory, all of the honor, all of the praise, so that our joy is found in the majesty that is expressed in him, seen in him. May the Lord help us then as we meditate upon these things. Let's stand for prayer. Oh, Lord, our God in heaven, we bow down before thy majesty in heaven. 
We acknowledge, O Lord, that all glory, honor, and praise belongs unto thy name alone, and to no other, that thou art God and there is no other. That all that we have, all that we are, all that we've done for good, all of it is what we've received, and all glory is returned to thee. O Lord, grant that we would see clearly by the Spirit, adorned, clothed with the garments of humility, enable us to see thyself and to see ourselves. And we pray, Lord, help us to make sense of the world as we look out our windows, at the world at large, our nation and others, that we would be able to see this clearly as well through the lens of Scripture. But even there, Lord, grant that we would take these things back to our own hearts and we ask that by the Spirit they would be applied to us as a salve to our wounded souls. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.